Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we find ourselves in your house on your day once again. And we ask that you bless us with your presence, that you forgive us of our sins, that you bring to our mind whatever is necessary to make you big and to consider ourselves small. We thank you for the truth of these words we're able to sing, the idea of seeing you through your creative work, but absolutely awestruck by your redemptive work, that you should not spare your son to give us access to your presence. Lord, we ask your blessing on other churches meeting like this this morning, that you do the same for them. Lord, we ask that we be an encouragement to one another here in this room. But Lord, by the time we're gone, may we be able to say we're more like you and less like ourselves. We consider that a day of eternal significance. I ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated and allow me to add my welcome to David's and include those that are accessing this service by way of live stream. And uh, for those who may be visiting with us, we're always glad to have guests and uh, we hope this service is meaningful and a blessing to you. And uh, also, I, I agree, uh, the sound of your fellowship before the service Sounds like it used to. And it, that's a blessing to me if it is to no one else. Um, but it's good to be in the house of the Lord. I've got a couple of announcements I'll make before we open our Bibles. Um, one we've been making for a number of weeks now. But our membership class for, for those considering membership at Wake Chapel begins next week. It'll be the 25th at 9 o'clock during our Sunday school hour. That'll be in room E220. E stands for Education Wing. That'll be on the second floor. And if you would like to register for that, it's not too late. There's a tearaway portion of your bulletin. You can give us your email address and name and put that in the collection plate at one of these doors. Or you can uh, send that to us electronically. Um, but we'd love to have you. There, there's no obligation involved in membership class. It's just our way of giving you what you need to know to make an educated decision as to whether this church is a good fit for you. Uh, also, on the back side of your bulletin, if you just turn that over, you'll see one of those funny-looking squares. And this is something new we're trying. Whenever we try something new, we open ourselves up to all kinds of stuff. Hey, that's great. Hey, that's, uh, never mind. Who knows? But what that represents, if you open your camera app on your phone and let it focus on there, it'll provide a link. You click that link, and you can bookmark it, and it'll, it'll be good for the foreseeable future. But that's where our up-to-date announcements are going to live for the foreseeable future. Uh, it's been difficult going from complexity before COVID to simplicity during COVID where we didn't have any announcements to speak of. <laughs> there wasn't anything going on. So there's no need to print anything or post anything. But now 
we have some announcements, and we're thinking that will get more and more complex as time goes. The trouble back before COVID was keeping them fresh, where by the time we had our due date in the office to print it and to have it available, some of those things would change, and then we'd have to tell you the change here from the platform. But if you weren't here to hear the change, and it could get confusing. So in this way, we can update this throughout the week. It'll always be the freshest copy. And if you bookmark that, you can always find it there. Now, if this doesn't work for most folks, we'll try something else. But for now, the idea is, if you've got your phone in your pocket, you don't need to know where your bulletin is. It's in your pocket. And you can find out what's going on, when you need to know, all your questions answered. So with that said, again, glad you're here. And let's open our Bibles to the book of Esther. And this week we're in Esther chapter 5, and we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, and picking up right where we left off last time, I'd like to read chapter 15, and then we'll pray, asking God's help to help us understand and obey. But this is Esther chapter 5, verse 1, on the third day. Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Verse 9, And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited to her together with the king. Yet all this is worth Nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. 
Then his wife Zeresh, all the friends, said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made in the morning. Tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. Lord, we must have your help to understand and obey. Be our teacher. May we be your students. And this for your glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen. As we've been moving through this book, and we've been able to look at a chapter a week for some of these weeks, sometimes we break it up into a chunk or two, but we've been talking about how this book is unique in the Bible as it does not mention God's name. Um, It does not mention certain things that we see in other books of the Bible. In fact, it's so unique that for a portion of time, it looked as if it wouldn't make the final cut, that your Bibles would have had 65 books rather than 66. But we've called this series The Unseen God because it seems at every twist and turn and coincidence, God is showing His hand, although in the background. It was C.S. Lewis who observed that coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. And chapter 5 is where we begin to see the coincidence count piling up. And this really is no coincidence at all. By the time we move from chapter 5 into chapter 6, when certain things that no one could have control over seem to play out exactly in the favor of of God's chosen people whom he promised to protect, redeem, deliver. So we'll work our way through what we've read. There are basically three paragraphs to this chapter, really two if you want to look at them uh, in two pieces, one having to do with what happened to Esther and the other having to do with what happened to Haman. Um, But I like the way the storyteller does not linger in suspense. You know, last week was almost like watching, and I had to look this up because I couldn't remember. There was a TV show that always left the episode unresolved until the first few minutes of the next episode. You'd have to wait till the next week. Couldn't remember what it was. It was Doctor Who. I never really understood that one anyway. It was weird to me, even as a little boy. But this was like that. Here's Mordecai saying, you've got to try. You've you've got to enter the king's presence and plead for the people who have been slated for total destruction. And she ends her uh, last statement with, okay, I'll do it. If I perish, I perish. And then we've got to wait a whole Sunday, for those of you who leave your Bibles in your car, to find out (laughs) what happened to Esther. I know better than that. Most of you read your Bibles and you know the story. And maybe that's why the author goes uh, very quickly and swiftly in the first few verses, the first two, that she won favor in the sight of the king. He stretched out the scepter, granting her permission, disaster averted. So once she's made up her mind at the end of chapter 4, 
Storyteller quickly moves in chapter 5 for resolution as far as Esther goes. But we're still waiting on resolution as far as what is to be done with the rest of the Jews. At the same time, though, time slows down. Uh, The first few chapters we read took nine years' worth of history. These three chapters take place in a couple or three days. So very swiftly moving and then very slow as far as the events that take place. From her moment of entry, as we just read, into the inner court, Esther has the air of a queen. I haven't seen that yet. But it says that she put on her royal robe. There's no, no idea of, of, of a sacrificial victim here. She's literally put on royalty. That's what it means to put on the royal robes. Um, apparently, if we do the best we can with the way the setting is prepared for us. She positions herself in the king's line of sight such that he could not help but notice her just outside the throne room and come to the conclusion that something is up. Uh, It's hard to say what was meant by the phrase, she won favor in his sight. The storyteller doesn't tell us what about Esther was so winsome. But everyone in the book seems to come to the same conclusion. Was it the way she looked in her royal robes and there's plenty of commentators that want to speculate as to what that meant were they her Jewish clothes or were they the Persian clothes or you know she was uh, when it was her turn for her night with the king she did not make any request as to what to wear she asked what would be best so it's it's impossible to know what's meant by that all we know is that it worked And then she humbly touched the scepter as custom required. And then verse 3, he said to her, what is it? What's your request? I'll give you your request up to the half of my kingdom. Now, how many of you think that is to be taken literal? Let's see, 147 districts. We're going to have to cut one in half, aren't we? That's not what that's meant. Uh, in fact, you see this all over the place in the ancient world and even different places in the Bible. It meant less, I'll give you exactly half. It meant more a way for a king to compliment someone he wanted to favor. And both he and they knew that the real limits are far less than what he just said. Right? Don't we do this too? Don't we fight over who gets to pay for lunch when our wallet's in the car? (laughs) Just to make it look like... You know, everybody knows somebody who would say right off the bat, Oh, my wallet's in the car. But there's, there's, there's custom going on here. And he certainly doesn't mean to the half of his kingdom, but what he does mean is, I want to show my favor. Ask. And I'll grant your request. There was a, uh, an example in the New Testament. You remember Herod? He actually said the same thing to the daughter of Herodias who had just performed some dance that he was impressed with. He said, I'll give you whatever you want up to the half of my kingdom. A much smaller uh, scope there than Xerxes here. 
Herod didn't have much to give away, but he was embarrassed at how far the girl asked after conferring with her mother, I want the head of John the baptizer on a platter. And he gave it to her because she asked in public. He had, she had him on the horns of a dilemma. And the king will soon be too. Xerxes here. But the way the story plays out is quite interesting. Even so, the king knows she wouldn't have offered or offended, rather, custom, jeopardizing her own life for no purpose at all. There's something on her heart. And that's certainly the case. But he's going to learn she's not quite ready to spill the beans yet. And through the rest of the chapter, there seems to be this uh, delaying the asking and the granting of this request. And that seems to heighten the drama as we move along, he says in verse 4, if it, or she says, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. So I'm not going to tell you yet. I want you to come to a banquet. And then the king wastes no time. Bring Haman quickly. Do what she asks. They came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So let's start making or jotting down some points to organize what we're looking at this morning. The first is, and this will be a comparison type arrangement, and this might sound wordy, but they're all here, and I thought rather than having uh, seven or eight points, let's just cram seven or eight into two, but make them long. It's kind of like, do you want your pizza cut in four pieces or six? If you're more hungry, you get six. If you're not as hungry, you get it cut in four, right? It's the same way either My granddaddy used to do that to me just because he thought it was cute. Point number one, the courage, patience, and subtlety of Esther, the mediator. That's her function in this chapter. She's mediating on behalf of her people, pleading their case before the man in charge. What we see from her is courage, we see patience, and we see subtlety. All three of these are accounted for. But that's your point. The courage, patience, and subtlety of Esther, the mediator. Courage is easily seen. She risks her life to approach his presence. He hasn't invited her, hasn't seen her for a month. If he didn't like the sight of her, that's the end of her. So there's the courage. We also see patience. She and her... uh, Attendants have been fasting for three days along with all the Jews in Persia. Uh, She, in a moment, we'll see, will delay the answer to the question she's been asked, which amounts to her response. And then as far as subtlety, we've already seen her decorum in her dress. She knew what to wear. It worked. We also see her approach. You know, I guess the queen could say, I don't have to fool the scepter stuff. I'm the queen. And I got something to tell you. She observes custom, respects institutions. Uh, How does the phrase go? With your hat in your hand. This is decorum. It's an approach. It's subtlety. And then in verse 6, we get a glimpse at her demeanor. How does she handle herself? So verse 6, they're at the actual banquet that afternoon as they were drinking wine after the feast. That is, these two men, 
The king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request, even to the half of my kingdom? That's the second time, almost verbatim. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... And really it's not, because you get two ifs there. If I've found favor in the sight of the king, if it please the king to grant my wish, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare, and tomorrow I'll tell you. So she's deferred this now. If you're adding it all up, it'll be three times. But those two ifs, if I've found favor, if it pleases the king, the second time the king is asked, the second time the king is offered to grant... Why wouldn't she just level with him? I mean, at what point do you get scared? Commentators differ. She's too scared to ask him. I would think it'd be more likely she'd be too scared to not ask him. He's asked twice. Maybe he'll decide he's not. Or maybe she's calculating a risk. How many times is the optimal amount of times for him to offer me something while everyone is listening and then I tell him what I want and he says, I'm not doing that. The more times he says he'll do it, the less room he has to say he won't. Might be her angle. It's hard to tell. But as far as the drama goes, you've basically got lights, camera, and no action at this point. You don't get back to the action until after Haman's little tantrum we'll look at here in a moment. But she's courageous because she walked into the king's presence. She's patient because she waited three days fasting and then three times to tell the king what she wants. She's also subtle because she's yet to play her hand, though the king has played his twice and will once more before she makes her appeal. So, in contrast... And Esther's side of this chapter is pretty easy and straightforward. She's patient. She's courageous. She's subtle. The next paragraph, and this point is to be looked at in contrast to the previous. Point number two is the arrogance, restlessness, and stupidity of Haman, the Agagite. Remember, that's his term, the Agagite. He's a descendant of Agag who... Samuel hacked to pieces before the Lord when Saul the king wouldn't kill him as he was told. So he's arrogant. That's opposite of courage. Well, it depends on if you like the candidate. If you like him, he's courageous and confident. If you don't, he's arrogant, right? They can look the same depending on which angle you're looking from. But we see this man restless too, where, where... Esther's patient, calculated. This man is making decisions that affect other people's lives at the drop of a hat. And then we see quite a bit of stupidity, or foolishness. So all of these are quite the other side of the coin. Verse 9, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Of course he did. He's just been at a private banquet with the king. And he'd had plenty of wine after the the meal. And it didn't go too well for the king the first time we read that there was wine involved. And it didn't go too well for the Jewish people after they sat down to drink having written the law that would have them all killed. So the wine seems to, uh, and we'll see it again, loosen the morals, if not the restraint of 
these powerful men. And that might be what Esther is using as so many others in Scripture have done. This was the last day, however. You can read forward if you don't know the story. The last day that Haman would ever be joyful and glad of heart. That's the last time for him. Better enjoy it. And he didn't for very long. The moment didn't last. Look at the rest of the verse. But when Haman saw Mordecai and the king gate that neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. And this has gone on and on. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, so at least he can uh, take a chill pill. But look what happens when he gets home. He sent and brought his friends and wife and his sons. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, the promotions, how the king had honored him, advanced him above everybody else. I think the thing to notice here is he had to send for his friends and bring his friends. Now we know he couldn't phone them up. But he's, he's had a great day. He walks out with a, you know, clicking his heels or whatever. Then he sees this one guy and he's mad and he goes home and he brings all his friends all over so he can brag about himself. And you, you can almost hear it. Hey, this is Zeresh, you know, Haman's wife. Uh, you guys got anything going on tonight? Haman's had a bad day and he needs you to come listen again. Oh, really? Yeah, he's got a couple of new Bentleys and we've got some new stuff in the wine cellar he wants to show you. Oh, and he's put some really, really, really big wheels on a really small car. He likes that too. <laughs> but just on and on. You just imagine... How many times have these people heard that? And it's stuff they already know. She knows how many sons they have. There's only one piece of news in the whole thing. But it's just, it's over the top. It's meant for us to see this over the top. Same as with the extravagance of the massive parties. We are to look at the narcissism of this man who can't see past the nose on his face and look at it as ridiculous. Um... Certain pieces of literature are made to get that response from you. It's almost laughable, as if it's a joke. Uh, the thing that came to my mind was that uh, scene in that classic you know, f- piece of film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, where they're all coming with their golden tickets, Veruca Salt has to be first. And uh, Mr. Wonka welcomes her and compliments how lovely she looks in her mink coat. Her response is, I have three others at home. Nice. The rest of the kids can't stand her. That's the joke. The people that act like this. Nobody wants to be anywhere around them. You have to call them and make them come. Because you're the man and they have to come. You don't like them and they don't like you, but it does something for you to show off and tell them all how special you are to mitigate the pain that comes from one guy who doesn't think you're as awesome as you think you do. That's the point we're supposed to make here. And it's not like you can put it on Facebook and just tell them, hey, I updated my my wall or whatever it's called now. And have that. He had to bring them in. They have to listen again. Verse 12, then Haman said, here's the news. 
Even Queen Esther let no one but me come to the king to feast that she prepared. Tomorrow I'm invited to another with the king. So at least there's news. But then there's this. Look at 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Now, if his rant about his stuff is obnoxious, verse 13 is troubling, even more so. Um, if, if you were to try to answer the question, yet all this, uh, what all this is worthless to him? Well, we don't have to go very far. I mean, we've got a paragraph there. He has a wife. He has children. He has money. We assume he eats the best food. I mean, he's just had a queen-made feast. He lives in the best of houses. He has a job, an important job. Everyone except the king is under his authority and bows at his feet except one. And who's that? And nobody inconsequential but because that nobody dares to insinuate that Haman isn't what Haman thinks he is everything else isn't worth two cents that's a problem I think my kids would probably say that's messed up ever know anybody like that who who can look at 99.99% perfection and find the one problem. I'm looking to see if my kids point at me. (laughs) As far as, say, a task or a clean room. or There's there's some folks that just seem to be, they see the negative. You know, we we put errors in the bulletin every now and then just so those folks have something to do. When they come to church. But at a certain point, that can be just your temperament or your personality. But there are some people that are only happiest where they used to be or where they want to be or having a little more. And, and this, of course, is the archetypal you know, example here. But he's not the only human to ever act like that. We see ourselves in this guy. We, we, we see corrupt government in this guy. We see broken homes in this guy. Um, and really the truth is, if we're gut level honest, we understand it because the, the better question is, why do people act like Haman? The better question would be, why doesn't everybody act like Haman? Because if you go to the sandbox, isn't that the way we come standard equipped? If there's a sandbox with three kids and two cookies, what's going to happen? A war. And, and how do animals usually handle their stuff? Do they share the, the hot dog you throw to your dogs? Here, I'll take a bite and you take a bite. No, the, the, the idea is to, to take it in one bite. Don't even taste it. Make sure it's yours so nobody else can get it. And that's the way we tend to act on our own. 
So the point here, and we'll make this again at the end, if Lewis is right in that coincidence is God's way of maintaining anonymity, then something like self-sacrifice would be where he signs his name. Because that's not standard equipment. Esther is looked at as the rose among the thorns. And there's a lot more thorns than there are roses. The world is much more full of Haman-type behavior than what Esther's doing here. And we'll finish that up at the end, but, but it's, it's good to raise it now. Once we're grown up, we're not in the sandbox any longer. Let's take this Haman-itis or whatever we want to call it. This is our depravity check portion of the message, which is good for each of us, though is not at all enjoyable. When we're adults and we heap to ourselves a certain identity and a measure of importance, it's offensive to us when others don't recognize that. That's what Haman's all about. This one guy won't bow to him. That just burns him up. Um, People that don't acknowledge what we think should be acknowledged or validate what we think should be validated or acknowledge effort and skill and authority and position and recognition. And if... They cross us in that manner. We put them on our excrement list. I probably should have chosen better words, but I think you get my, my point. And once they're on that list, life's different. Oftentimes they don't ever come off that list. Because we're too proud to acknowledge that They might just see life different than we do. We might not be as special as we think we are. Um, My daddy had a message that was uh, one of his more popular messages. And I, I could gauge the popularity of my dad's sermons, not because I sat through them. That was part of it. But for the longest time, I was the guy that during the invitation went to the back room with the master cassette. And then I stuck it down in this machine where three other blanks would go, and you hit the button, in two minutes you had three copies. And I could do that about three times and get to the desk, usually before everybody let out. And a popular message, I'd have more work to do on that Wednesday. They'd fill out a form, hey, I didn't get one. And I remember copying messages for a long time based off I think he titled it Get Out of Jail Free and on the screen you know, back in the 90's you used to use overhead stuff a lot it was a picture of the corner of the Monopoly board the Get Out of Jail Free right and the passage had to do with the, the parable of the man who was forgiven the debt that he could never pay and only the king could do that And this guy couldn't pay it off if he had his whole life to do it. But then this guy who's forgiven everything and given his life back, he goes out and basically lays hands on a guy for lunch money, comparatively. And word gets back to the king. And the king brings him back in and says, I don't understand this at all. I gave you your life back. You are forgiven. 
if ever there was such a thing, but you can't forgive this other guy. And then the parable talks about how he was delivered over to the tormentors until he'd paid the last farthing. And then my dad goes into explaining from his own family how that, because of sin and selfishness, there were problems that affected and broke marriages, affected children, um, such that there was a, a lot of fallout. You, you, you live in this world, you know how this goes. And there are people who will never speak to another human being on that list again as long as they live. Right? And the thinking is, because of what they've done to me, I will put them in jail, lock them away from me, deprive them of me forever. When only life will tell by the time it's over that what they've done is precisely the opposite. They're the ones in jail. They place themselves in jail. Haman had no friends. Haman was a jerk with a capital J. People would be glad when Haman is dead. In fact, you'll probably say, skip to next week's message where Haman hangs, right? We'll be rid of him. Ding dong, Haman's dead. Right? That lives in here. And we hate it because we hate it in ourselves. Even though sometimes we're blind to it. Such that we live that way. It's easy enough to perform a self-check as far as whether or not we're infected with the same Jeremiah 17, 9 heart that seems to be famous in Haman's behavior. One example would be if your criteria for friendship is that they must always agree with you. Probably in a bad spot. You should have friends that disagree with you. They'll teach you things. They'll, they'll broaden your character. Now, I, I know there are things in this book that if you don't believe, you don't get to heaven. But that doesn't mean you can't have friends and acquaintances that you hope to win to salvation in Jesus. It's just because they don't agree with the way you think that someone should vote doesn't mean that they can tell you you're being a jerk if you are being one. Hear them. Take that into account. If they don't believe in Genesis 1-1, do you not go to the restaurant they say is really good? No, no, no. I'll go to the restaurant if they say it's good. See, we're, we're weird in this fashion. We, we get these ideas that only the people that think like us are qualified to speak with any reasonability. There's another one. You can also test... By following your emotions. What makes you happy? With Haman, I think what made him happy was everybody looking at him. What makes you sad? Some guy thinking that he wasn't so cool. What gets you torqued? Are there certain people that if you see them in the store, you go the other way? And then the rest of your day is ruined? 
Now, we joked before about how I like going to the beach because I can go to the store and I don't see anybody. Sometimes it, it takes time to see people in the store. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is just the sight of them gets your blood pressure going. That's not good. Look at verse 14. Then when the wife, his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, and here's where they're going to really be help, helpful. Let a gallows 50 cubits high. That's about 75 feet. Solomon's temple wasn't but 60-some feet tall. So this is extraordinary. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Won't that make you happy? He'll be dead. That's probably the last test. If you're willing to make people sad, to make yourself happy, then that's probably the final straw. Here's the point, and this will carry us into next week. If the prime minister, that's who Haman is, second in command, is ready to kill the man that saved the king's life, then the king isn't really important to the prime minister's agenda. And that's what the king is going to realize. Hey, if if he'll kill the guy who saved my life, maybe he don't need me. And whenever anyone in that world got too close to the king with too much power, he became a monstrous threat. And usually those guys disappeared unless they were one step ahead of the king. In this case, he's not going to be. But if we're asking ourselves how this shoe fits, if a child of God is ready to throw away another child of God, then God the Father isn't as important to that so-called child of God than he should be. I think that'd be a good way to Try the shoe to see if it fits. Now, if we're comparing courage and patience and subtlety on the part of Esther and then this arrogance and stupidity on the part of Haman, if we left it right there, we would have an incomplete message because that would make Esther the hero and she's not meant to be. There's one more comparison, and that is the sovereignty, faithfulness, and mercy of God the Father, who allowed Esther to find favor, who worked in the spat between him and Vashti to get her in the right place, had what the king wanted, Mordecai, just so being in the right place to hear the plot against the king's life. In the next chapter, the king's going to not be able to sleep. And we know the king can do about whatever he wants to do if he can't sleep. What does he do? Go get me the history book and read it to me. Maybe that's what he hoped would induce sleeping. But he hears about this that was never rewarded. You know, the coincidences are off the chart. And then as far as mediation goes, which is what we're looking at with Esther, we talked about this already. All the mediators, Moses or Esther, they all point to Jesus who came to this earth in order to go back to heaven with the basis for which to forgive a world of their sins. That was his own innocent blood in our place. 
And as a result, again, if we go back to the way we started, if coincidence is the way of God remaining anonymous, and he seems to want to hide in this book, self-sacrifice is his way of taking the credit. And when we see the self-sacrifice of Esther, it's pointing us toward the self-sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament. Right? And this is where we could ask that question again. And it'd be the wrong question to say, why can't everybody be more like Esther? Because we're sinful. We have to work hard not to be like Haman. It took a Jesus to come to this earth and say, listen, you've heard it said of old time, but I'm going to tell it to you this way. You're going to put yourself last, not first. And he's going to do so by example. Uh, the ramifications of Christianity are the only answer to, to things like uh, racism. Because if you just watch the natural world, which the people who don't believe in God think that we all are as animals anyway, the ones who are in charge and have all the power get, <coughs> excuse me, get to tell the weaker people what to do. And what do they call that? Nobility. Right? It's a good thing. No, it's a horrible thing. And as Christianity spread, we got rid of that stuff. At least we were supposed to have. Uh, the idea that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 where God told Eve, um, you're going to have problems between the two of you, man and woman. And for most of the developed world, men have lorded over women. It's only the New Testament where women are elevated to the position God created them to have. It's only because of the grace of God and what Jesus has done on our behalf that we ever see anything that remotely resembles Him coming out of any one of us. We'll be Haman if left alone. The, the, I, the question is, why is there such a drug problem? The question is, why isn't everybody on drugs? If drugs mute the pain... And help us be Superman. Why wouldn't we all stay doped up? Because this book tells us that will kill us in the end. And we sacrifice the moment for the future. We get that from the scripture. We get it from Jesus. So all the interpersonal conflicts. The one with Haman and Mordecai is off the chart. But it lives in every last one of us. And... None of us sit in cemeteries with a Kleenex in our hand crying over the guy who took his ball and went home. Oh, I really miss him. That's Haman. He's, he's, he's about to take his ball and go home. And on his way home, he'll get put on a stick and killed in front of everybody. No, we sit and we cry at the people who gave of themselves to make us better. The people who volunteered to teach us something about the truth in Sunday school as kids so we don't make shipwreck of our lives when we're grown up. Uh, the men who left their home with their kids for a few hours to pour into us so we wouldn't be so awkward and backward as teenagers. Uh, the people who handled the business within a church that no one would ever thank them for because we're too self-absorbed to thank anybody for anything that isn't right in front of our face. But faithfully, they were available 
to the cause of Christ because God changed them. He forgave them. They knew what it was like to be dead and now they're alive. And that's who we miss. That's who makes a difference. That's what makes an, a young girl who looked like she was having a great time being the king's plaything. Look at life and realize if I'm ever going to have a future, I've got to sacrifice the now. And that's what Jesus did. He's a better mediator. He's a better king. He's a better everything in this book. But we need to realize that most of our lives as Christians is spent turning the other cheek. You're never going to get along with everybody. Always somebody going to seem to get your goat. It's not worth it. Let it go. Forgive them. Enjoy life being used of God with the gifts that He's given you. And if no one else is impressed with you and what you do, He is because He made you and He gave it to you. And if He's the only one that is pleased, it's the back, backward of... You know, Haman's angry that everybody bows down except for one. We should be happy if everyone's angry except for one who's crazy about you. Sent his son to die because he couldn't stand the thought of eternity without you. That's how much he loves you. So with that said, let's close the book on this chapter. We'll come together again next week for the next. But let me close this message in prayer and then we've got another song to sing. But let's bow. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and to have it come very close to the skin, if not through it. Lord, it's your word that's a, that's a two-edged sword that pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerns the heart and lays us bare. Lord, with the meticulous care of a surgeon, cut out Haman from each of our hearts. And Lord, give us that heart of flesh to replace that heart of stone made possible by your sacrifice on Calvary. Lord, if there's someone here who's hearing these things for the first time, they're trying to make sense of them, this is new. Lord, may we have the opportunity to tell them the rest of the story so that they too can believe and be born again. Lord, we thank you for our time together in your house. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.